Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, the Trump administration blocked Dr. Ngozi Okojo-Iweala for the next WTO Director General. Will President-elect Biden reverse this decision? And tech companies from Google to SpaceX have some out-of-the-box ideas to increase internet access. Will they work? Plus, we discuss the opportunities digital currencies present to lower long-standing barriers to remittance flows to and within Africa. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In late October, President Trump blocked Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Wella for becoming the next World Trade Organization Director General. Will the WTO bide its time until Trump leaves office? Joining me to discuss WTO and other topics are Yomi Kazem, Quartz Africa reporter, Alexis Akwajiram, Nigeria Bureau Chief for Reuters, and Dipali Fernandez, a Senior Migration and Economic Development Specialist at the International Organization for Migration, or IOM. Okay, Kojoiwela, she's a former finance minister, former foreign minister for Nigeria, and it looked like she had this locked up. She had the endorsement of the European Union, key WTO stakeholders, and then the United States decided to block her candidacy and said they were going to support the South Korean candidate. Dr. Konjoy Wela had secured the overwhelming backing of the more than 160 members of the WTO, including countries in Africa, the Caribbean, the European Union, China, Japan and Australia. However, at the final moment, her candidacy failed to win the support of the United States, which raised last minute objections. And it looks like I guess we're going to be in this sort of uncertain moment for the foreseeable future because the WTO said that they were going to postpone the vote until, quote, further notice. Yomi, you and I talked about this for an article that you wrote. What do you think is happening? Why did Trump block Ngozi? Um, Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, The the official reason from the Trump administration is that it's not pleased by how the selection process has been carried out. The specifics of what that means remain unclear, but it's important to have this conversation and also view the decision by the U.S., within the context of pre-existing animosity between the Trump admin and the, you know, WTO. The WTO, like many other things and many other bodies, has been subject to Trump's many verbal attacks. He's described them as horrible. He's also described them as being biased towards China. And then also at an institutional level, the Trump admin has blocked the appointment of judges to the WTO appellate body. Now, that's a key move because it pretty much renders that body useless. So taking these important bits of context into consideration, um, the vetoing of Okonjo Wheeler's appointment can be seen as being less about questions over her ability or suitability for the role and the job, and more about Trump's and his administration's overtly adversarial stance towards the WTO itself. But it's also probably worth men- you know mentioning that the Trump admin has stated a preference for Conjo Wheeler's opening for the role, the South Korean trade minister. And in doing so, they highlighted her experience with leading trade talks. And that's one supposed flaw that's been held up against the Conjo Wheeler. Um, while she has incredible experience at the highest levels of government and also at the world Bank. The claim or the the flaw that people say is that she specifically doesn't have enough experience leading, you know, multilateral trade talks. So you can view this within the lens of the Trump admin being adversarial towards WTO and pretty much looking to throw a spanner in the works or 
have, looking at it from the perspective of saying, well, we just don't think Okonjo-Ela is up to the job. My colleague, Bill Reich, had this piece that he published at CSAS just right after the veto. And he thought that perhaps the U.S. could be using this um, as a way to pursue other objectives, including applying pressure on members to meet their obligations, to report subsidies, or even to reach a meaningful fisheries agreement in the face of opposition from China. I mean, for me personally, this is a slap in the face of a U.S. citizen, and Ngozi Nkojewela became a U.S. citizen in 2019. This is a slap against U.S. allies who all seem to have supported Nkojewela. And then, as you said, Yomi, this is about multilateralism and the Trump administration's hostility towards the WTO specifically, but um, multilateral institutions in general. Alexis, I'm wondering, what are you hearing about how Nigerians are, are, are taking this? Are they confident that she'll make it through? Any quiet diplomacy from Abuja? I mean, for the most part, um, from Nigerians, they're happy about this. I mean, obviously, they would have liked to have seen it go through and for, for her to have uh, not had this hurdle thrown up by the US. But ultimately, there's been a clear preference. It's been stated by an overwhelming majority. So there's a quiet confidence. To the question about any quiet diplomacy, they did say that they were going to make efforts to get people on side. Uh, personally, I haven't seen any evidence of that quiet diplomacy. But there is a school of thought that I've heard, which is that this is actually other people's fight. It's not necessarily Nigeria's fight because Nigeria's put up the candidate and the candidate's done very well. And it's just a matter of other actors, other players in this process to step forward and say, look, you know, everyone's put forward a clear preference for this particular candidate. So let's get this over the line. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, there's not that much that Abuja needs to do. And quite frankly, there's just so many other things that are pressing uh, in Nigeria. You know, we're still only a couple of, of weeks since the Lakey massacre and sort of the fallout from NSARS. It, it does seem like, Yomi, it seems like they can just wait until a Biden administration comes into into office in January. That's my read on what the WTO is doing is just hoping that they get a different decision. Is that how you're thinking about it? I mean, do you expect the Biden team to to support Ngozi's candidacy? And do you think that this is going to cause any long-term damage to the Nigeria-U.S. relationship? Or are they going to be able to just sort of uh, attribute this to the Trump administration and move on? So on, on a fundamental level, right, I think most people expect that the Biden administration take a less adversarial stance on most foreign policy issues and also, you know, uh, against other bodies as opposed to the Trump administration. And the belief is that their focus at an initial stage, most especially, would be to look to try to repair reputational damage that's believed to have been caused or done by the Trump admin, right? So if you have that as a guide, it's it's entirely likely that the Biden admin will be more favorable towards the Conjurella's candidacy. So I imagine that the Biden admin will be putting out a lot of fires including trying to get a handle on the COVID-19 situation in the U.S. So I don't see why or how they'll look to then further confrontation of sorts with the WTO, especially when all of the other members are already in agreement and seem to want to conjure in the role. The fact that the, the meeting that was supposed to have held on the, on the 9th of November, that was a meeting where they were supposed to attempt to find a resolution. Now, that meeting has been postponed. That could be a hint that the WTO is also, you know, playing the waiting game like everybody else, trying to see how the Biden admin comes in and how 
they, they respond. And also an indication that they are desperately trying to avoid that last resort, which is deciding the director general by a vote. That's nothing that's never happened in the history of the WTO. The DGs are always chosen by consensus. They're, they're pretty much trying to avoid that last resort. So I think the theory that they're waiting for the Biden administration is entirely plausible. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So we'll kind of have to come back to this issue after January 20th and see if there's any progress. Let's move to our second topic, which is about how do you get cheap, reliable internet in sub-Saharan Africa? I mean, there's a consensus here that this could be transformational for the region's economies, but there's been a number of infrastructure and regulatory hurdles that have hindered real progress. And what's been interesting is that there's been a lot of really creative ideas out there from tech companies on how to get internet sort of to leapfrog, right, the the limitations of infrastructure. Some of them seem quite fanciful, to be quite honest. But today we're going to try to unpack them. And, and Yomi, you wrote, you've written a couple of pieces around the Google uh, ventures, both Project Tara, which intends to provide high-speed internet over long distances using beams of light. You're going to have to kind of walk us through what that is. And then there's also Loon, which is the balloons that float 20 kilometers above the ground to provide 4G. They are expected to connect 100% of the Kenyan population to 4G internet. Loon and Telcom Kenya are using a fleet of around 35 or more separate balloons that will be in constant motion in the stratosphere above East Africa. So, I don't know, man. Could this really be something that could change internet access on the continent? The answer is on current evidence. It, we're we're going to have to wait and see. The, the, all the potential is there for it to happen, right? Uh, but we're pretty much going to have to wait and see. So to try to explain what these different projects are, Tara is the more recent one. The idea with Project Tara is that Google will mount terminals high up on existing cell towers or rooftops, and then technology will allow for high-speed data transmission between terminals through invisible light beams. Each transmission from one terminal to another is described as a link and each link is projected to be able to transmit bandwidth of up to 20 gigabits per second and also cover distances of about 20 kilometers so that's really powerful stuff right on the other hand the idea for loon is to have tens of balloons in constant motion in you know wherever they are deployed right now they are both parts of east africa and then these balloons serve as floating towers and power you know internet connectivity below both projects have already been deployed and they're uh, in partnership with local telecoms players in in Kenya. They also come out of X, which is a division of Google's parent company, Alphabet. Now, that division is focused on powering global internet connectivity through innovative solutions. And the goal for the division is to focus on enabling affordable and high-speed internet access for billions of people who currently lack those two things. As it turns out, Africa is home to both the most expensive costs for internet access relative to monthly income and also the slowest levels of internet speed globally. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that Africa would be the focus for this project, right? Um, back to your question as to whether or not, you know, they can change things. Like I said, it's, it, it remains to be seen. The, the division is aptly called Project Moonshot, or rather the Moonshot Factory, right? It's clearly a moonshot. I, I don't know how sustainable it would be on the long term, but as far as the technology is, it appears that it can work. How? As to whether they can deploy that all across the continent, that remains to be seen. 
Alexis, I don't know. Have you thought about these moonshots? What is your take? Is are these worthwhile ventures, and do they have legs? I think it's definitely worth trying. In terms of the extent to which I've been tracking these projects, in all honesty, this has been very much on the periphery of my awareness. I am vaguely aware of them. It's an interesting thing because I think it comes down to scale. And I think Moonshot, it does what it says on the tin. I mean, ultimately, it's worth trying. It cannot hurt to try. But I think it would take a lot to scale this up across the continent. And I'd be interested... And part of the reason why this is partly on the edge of my consciousness is also because it's one of these situations where you have a slight schism between East Africa and West Africa. So, you know, you often see these projects uh, trialed in Kenya or other parts of East Africa, whereas you tend to see a dearth of these things in Nigeria or other parts of West Africa. So I'm curious, perhaps borderline sceptical. I'd wait to see what happens, but I find it hard to believe it's going to be scaled up in any meaningful way, um, certainly not in the short term or even medium term. But I'd love to be proved wrong. Yeah, but let's go on a little detour. You know, I spent a lot of my career in West Africa, and so maybe Yomi, Alexis, and I, we can, you know, we can advocate for West Africa. Why Why isn't West Africa an ecosystem of, of innovation and exploration when it comes to these issues? Why is it the East Africans and the Kenyans particularly? So I, I, my theory is, my theory is, East Africa seems, on a, on a very basic level, seems far more welcoming towards innovation, technological innovation. And the biggest single piece of evidence that supports that theory is the advent of mobile money in East Africa and the support it got from government and also the transformative effect it has had. You compare that with what's going on across parts of West Africa, particularly Nigeria, for example, and startups here live in the daily fear of what regulatory pothole they're going to walk into, which will pretty much render their, their idea or their project redundant. So I think it boils down to how welcome these innovative thoughts and actions are. They seem to be more welcome in East Africa than here. I would agree with a lot of that. I think certainly to international investors and just people in kind of tech and innovation space, I mean, it's become hackneyed and cliched for people to talk about mobile money and M-Pesa in East Africa. But that that's for a reason, because, you know, it, it's something that people see it and they think, yes, that can be done. As well as that, I also agree with Yomi on that point about, particularly in Nigeria, that there is the fear that you can have a successful idea, which is then scuppered because the regulation will come in. So a classic example of that would be two-wheeled ride hailing. So, you know, there were a number of different companies like Gokada, for example, um, SafeBotter came over as well. And the idea was, look, in Lagos, for example, terrible traffic, you could get around on two wheels and do ride hailing. But then the regulators came in, Lagos State said, no, we're going to ban them. And so there's always this tug of war between innovation and the regulators. And, and people fundamentally ask themselves, well, is it worth the risk? As well as that, I think, uh, frankly, Nairobi in particular and other parts of East Africa, just perceived to be a very easy, nice place to be. You know, um, if you're going to maybe settle and visit for a prolonged period of time, I think Kenya, for example, is a tourist destination and there is, there's a tourism infrastructure, it's a transport hub, aviation hub. So there's that as well. Um, because people are human beings and they want to be somewhere that's comfortable and pleasant to be in. Uh, whereas the same isn't necessarily 
said about Lagos, even though Lagos does attract a lot of investment. And then as well as that, there's a language factor. So in East Africa, you've got Swahili. So you know, there's a common block where people speak in the same language, literally. Whereas in West Africa, you have Anglophone West Africa, and then the majority is actually Francophone West Africa, isn't it? I really like that. And I think it's actually going to show up a little bit when we get into our, our final section. I did neglect to, to mention SpaceX uh, and their new Starlink uh, initiative, which I think is getting, like all of these initiatives, some enthusiasm and some skepticism. But Elon Musk's idea is that he's going to launch 12,000 small satellites, which would bring high-speed internet to the world's underserved populations, particularly rural areas in developing regions like Sub-Saharan Africa. And in Washington, D.C., I think often the first instinct is how can digital economies unlock you know, livelihoods and be able to scale these economies. But almost in the second breath is about Huawei. And I'm sure that if any of these things got traction, policymakers would wonder if this could be an alternative to Huawei. I don't know, Yomi, is that even the right way to think about it? Could this be an alternative to a network like Huawei? Or is this just that's the, the wait and see uh, guidance applies here as well. Yeah, I mean, 100%. The wait and see guidance applies here for sure. Uh, it remains to be seen how this is going to fare. W- one reason why these things are always wait and see is one example is Google Station, right? So Google Station was launched in 2018, I believe. And, you know, w- w- there was a lot of fanfare. The idea was to essentially have free public Wi-Fi in different parts of Africa. Nigeria was one of those, especially in Lagos. But as of September, Google Station was shut down. So Starlink, you know, all the best intentions, but we have to wait and see how it works. Now, as to your question, you know, comparing this with the Huawei situation, I think most people don't realize this, but there are very different feelings towards Huawei in the US and also in parts of Africa. Relations with China across Africa are mostly sound, mostly stable, and also mostly reciprocated. And so Huawei doesn't exactly have the perception problems that it has in the US here as well. The Chinese government funded and built the AU headquarters in Addis Ababa, right? The focus is on the infrastructure that Huawei currently provides. And in light of the problems that exist, I think most people are focusing on the good as opposed to the bad. Yeah, it's one of the things that that we do a lot at CSIS with friends, colleagues, with African thought leaders is try to present different perspectives on how Africans see uh, Chinese investments tech because it, as you said so so accurately and eloquently, Yomi, there's a huge uh, divide between the way Americans think about this and the way that many Africans do. Let's let's move to our, our paradigm for today. And CSIS Africa has spent a number of months thinking about remittances and whether digital currency, and that's issued by central banks or the private sector or, or de- decentralized like Bitcoin, whether they can address some of the longstanding barriers to remittance flows, and that's especially cost. And it's so great to have the three of you on this podcast because, Dipali, you and I had a fantastic conversation about this. And then for Yomi and Alexis, some of the reporting that you've done for your respective employers, courts, and Reuters have been fantastic as well. So I think we're going to have a great conversation. We're going to have to zoom out. So Dipali, can you kind of Help us think through the state of remittances in Africa. Why is this important to economies and livelihoods? And what are some of the impediments? 
Thanks, John. And I think Yumi and Alexi might have a lot to contribute to this part as well. Well, first of all, congratulations on the paper that you went to Paris Route because you'll cover quite a few issues over there very well. In terms of um, um, trends, I mean, we've seen a rising trend basically for remittances since 2005 to Sub-Saharan Africa. In terms of volumes, you have about 10 countries, Nigeria being one of the biggest recipients globally of remittances. In terms of share of GDP, remittances and GDP, which is a very important indicator of how important remittances are to an economy, you have a different set of countries. About I think there are about 15 countries which have 5% of their GDP accounted for by remittances and another seven which have 10% of their GDP accounted for remittances. And then you have countries like Sudan, South Sudan, where it's 35.4% and Lesotho, where it's 21%. You also have a large intra-regional migration. So people always focus on migration out of Africa, but intra-regional migration and remittances linked there are important. In terms of costs, um, Sub-Saharan Africa has one of the highest costs at 8.75% this year. And um, COVID has um, caused a kind of a decrease of remittances, potentially 5.8% next year. Why is it important? It's important because even though migrants sent back about 15% of their income, to the countries that they come from. That income supports about 800 million people globally. And it's it's a form of kind of direct aid because it goes directly to food, nutrition, medicine, education. So it's even though they're private transfers, they're extremely important uh, uh, forms of development in a sense. And at a macro level, of course, it's foreign reserves, it's credit rating of the country, so on and so forth. There are issues. Um, the issues that relate primarily to transfer costs and you know technology. And I was very interested in the conversation uh, that Alexi and the point that Alexi made on mobile money, because we actually use this as a success story. And in terms of post-COVID, there's been a fall in remittances, but that fall has varied. So some countries like Somalia, like Kenya, have seen rises in remittances at certain points in time. And a move towards digitization. Everybody's waiting for the health to health sector to improve and the economy and the labor markets to improve as well. And the future of work will determine where things go to. I mean, the future of migration may change in different ways. The future of labor may change in different ways. And therefore, the impact of remittances may also change. No, that's great. And it's one of your last points that I, I want to spend a little time on, which is that at the beginning of the pandemic, the expectation from the World Bank was that remittances would drop by 23%. And what we know now is they've revised it that it would be about 9%. And as you said, some countries are usually actually above their historic uh, number of remittance flows. So this was less steep than expected. I mean, it's still consequential. And so Topaz, Makulu, and I published a paper which is entitled The Train is Leaving the Station, The Future of Digital Currencies in Sub-Saharan Africa. And one of the things that we posited is that Part of the reason, perhaps, why the drop wasn't as dire as expected was because of mobile money that we've been talking about and digital currency. And, and a lot of our thinking has been informed by by work from uh, Yomi and Alexis. So, Yomi, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts first. You know, how much has digital currency, mobile money, crypto, how much of that has that played in your mind in in preventing such a dramatic drop in this key flow of, of money? I think the suggestion is sound. Some of the resilience that we have seen with the you know revision of the World Bank's projections comes not just from the fact that 
there's an increased ease of sending money across the world, almost specifically to Africa compared to 20 years ago, you know, you know, given the advent of mobile money, um, but also as well, the growing number of alternative mediums through which people can send money. So the idea is in the past, you can only send fiat currency, but you know, now there's an option to adopt and send a digital currency. And there's lots of anecdotal evidence that suggests that Africans are taking up the use of currencies like Bitcoin as walkarounds, mainly for bitten impediments to cross-border trade and payments. But if they can use it for those things, there's absolutely no reason why remittances can also not be a use case you know, for this. And in fact, there are tech startups today in Africa that build their products around that particular value proposition, essentially allowing people outside of the country uh, or, or rather in countries across Africa and the US or elsewhere abroad to send money home through cryptocurrencies. In some cases, they let them send Bitcoin home, but because the likelihood is that the people or the receivers on this end are probably less familiar with cryptocurrencies, they then receive cash. And interestingly, I just read about two weeks ago, one of, the, one of those startups in Nigeria has actually developed a product where neither the sender nor the receiver interact with Bitcoin. They send cash, but then the company uses, you know, Bitcoin to essentially par the transaction. So the sender and the receiver are both, you know, sending and receiving cash, but Bitcoin is what's actually powering the transaction. So absolutely, my belief is that the adoption of digital currencies and also, you know, the existence, the very existence of mobile money means that it's just not as dire a situation as it would have been as early as five years ago or 10 years ago. That's really fascinating. Maybe Alexis, you can help me with the biggest challenge that I had in the research is being clear about the differences between mobile money and digital currency, whether they are complementary, whether it's Nigerians or Kenyans or whomever, how do they see the uses of these differently? When does it make sense to use one versus the other? I mean, yeah, I think there are subtle differences, but and but they are complementary. The reason why they're complementary is because they have slightly different uses for slightly different groups of people. So mobile money is good for people who are maybe more working in, a, in an informal economy, or I, mean, I guess ultimately these are all informal economies, but they are poorer people and it helps with financial inclusion. Ultimately, it's a more straightforward way of getting cash in and cash out. And this is how you reach maybe rural areas and you have mobile money agents in those areas. Whereas Bitcoin, I mean, Yomi alluded to this when he said that we've written about this, certainly in Reuters, and I can see reports as well, we've written about this through the digital currencies and specifically Bitcoin through the prism of trade and business. And certainly I think a lot of that is down to the fact that there are complex processes involved in using Bitcoin that demand a degree of technical knowledge. Now, I mean, Yomi's given an example of a Nigerian startup, which I must confess I had not heard of. And with time, there will be more and more startups and more companies that offer ways in which you can demystify cryptocurrencies and make the process a little less complex. But that I would say, certainly at the moment, the, the division would be in terms of one's more for business and more for trade and the other one is more about financial inclusion. The other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that Bitcoin isn't legal tender, certainly not in Nigeria. And there's always the danger that you could fall foul of a scam or hoax in some way and you've got no recourse to get your money back. So there's also that worth bearing in mind, whereas it's more of a formalized system with mobile money. You set me up nicely to ask a question of Dipali, which is sort of how do we actually 
create an enabling environment if we think that this has the potential to be a game changer. Because there are these, one, as both Alexis and Yomi said, there's these, you know, first mile, last mile problems, because how do you actually convert this money into Naira or into CD or into, you know, shillings, depending on the country. And then there's just the fact that most countries in sub-Saharan Africa don't even have regulation. It looks like Nigeria is at the beginning of that process, and so is South Africa, but they are in the minority. So, Dapali, you know, one, you know, what are your views on this technology? Is it a game changer? And then second, what do you think governments and companies and other stakeholders need to do to make this safe, legal, and to increase adoption? So I'm going to be a bit of a devil's advocate here um, because I also have a finance background. And, and the reason why is I'll take you back to the financial crisis. The role of the central bank is to maintain less risk, what they call systemic risk, as well as to protect small deposit holders and consumers, which in this case would be migrants. On the other hand, you have a very innovative financial sector, which can also be speculative. And it was the creation of these CDOs that led to the financial crisis in 2007-2008. So given that background, central bankers have been very, I won't use the term hesitant, they've been They've been aware of the potential of digital currencies. And there, I completely agree with Yomi and Alexei. Digital currencies have potentially a huge role to play. But as far as the the central banks of countries are concerned, they're a little bit wary about it because it could go the same way as CDOs or it can be a game changer. And what will make, what will enable a good decision in that area would be, for instance, the creditworthiness of the the issuer who's, who's issuing this digital currency. Normally, central banks issue notes, legal tender, promissory notes, and currency in your bank account. But there is trust in the central bank, you know, backed with, you know, a basket of assets or currencies or whatever it is. So who is the issuer? The second thing is how stable is the currency, the digital currency? Will it be subject to speculation? Third is how easy is it, you know, to transfer the digital currency? And as Yomi mentioned, in the case of uh, developing countries and specifically in Africa, You may have somebody sitting in New York transferring money to a rural village in Uganda. So the person in New York has to be, have that literacy to know that, you know, digital currencies exist. I can transfer the money. So that may be easier access to internet. But the person receiving it in the village in Uganda may not A, have that knowledge and B, be able to, you know, take the money out in digital tokens or have a bank account for that matter. So we go back to the cash discussion. That is if they have the whole ICT infrastructure, bringing together the right people, whether it's governments, whether it's private sector, social media companies to outreach to migrants once you have the correct formula. Because if you have a lot of digital currency scams, you potentially have a complete lack of trust in the whole setup. But given COVID, many things are going online anyway. So this is the time digital currencies can take off. I don't think that was devil advocacy. That's exactly what needs to happen. There needs to be real frameworks for how to use it. There needs to address a whole sense of both skepticism or concern about the the criminality or, or fraud. There has to be investment in civic education, in tech literacy. I mean, there's a whole host of things that has to happen to make this work. The reason why we, we call it the train is leaving the station is because particularly with China developing its own central bank uh, digital currency, there's seems to be a 
certain governments are moving forward. And then as I think the work of Reuters and courts has showed is that Africans are using it regardless of whether it's legal or not. And so it's incumbent on, I think, at the macro level for the AU as they work on their digital transformation strategy and then governments themselves to kind of figure out where they sit on this. Yomi, tell me you disagree. Like, what? how do you think about making this legal and safe and useful? A lot of that boils down to two things, as Dipali rightly said. Regulation is key, right? But with that currently non-existent, and here, here is one way to look at that. In August of 2018, there was a report on the state of cryptocurrency regulation across Africa. Most of the African countries were undecided on what to do. 21 of them had no public stance. Only, I think, one of them had what was considered to be a favorable stance. Now, it hasn't exactly changed that much. Ken- in Kenya, it, there are still question marks. In Nigeria and South Africa, there's some progress being made towards regulation. However, it's still unclear what that regulation would, would look like. So first off, a regulation needs to, needs to be in place. The reason for regulation, and, and I find this interesting, in conversations with players in the cryptocurrency space that is, you know, founders of cryptocurrency exchanges and startups, they want regulation to happen because if regulation exists, it makes their job easier. It essentially makes it easier for end users or consumers to be able to identify what is a legitimate or an illegitimate player in the space. And so that sort of protects the consumer. But in the absence of that, what's happening right now is a lot of consumer education led by these startups, essentially trying to help them understand not just how to use it, but also the use cases and why it's important that you know they have this option and the kind of stumbling blocks that they face for example in nigeria the reason why bitcoin first became popularly known was because of a scam it was the mmm scam back in 2018 so what happened was this scam crashed and was you know your typical pyramid scheme it crashed there were losses of about 50 million dollars according to the nigerian central bank two years later the scam attempted a return and when it attempted this return, having already been established as a scam, its chosen payment methods was Bitcoin. Now, if you have an established scam associating itself or attempting to come back using a cryptocurrency, then that association is is there and it's hard to break. So most people who don't know about these currencies or how to use them startups and players in the space first have to break that association in their head. And so it falls down to consumer education on the part of the startups and also, you know, wholesome regulation on the part of the governments. That's really great uh, background context. And I think some policy recommendations as well. I just want to end with why I have been interested in this issue, because when I was in the White House, I worked on Somalia. And one of the big challenges was that it was difficult to do remittance sending remittances from the United States to Somalia. Uh, many of the sort of small money, you know, transmitter or operators, transfer operators were fearful that they were going to be in trouble with anti-money laundering, uh, combating the finance of terrorism laws. And so, you know, this digital solution, I'm not sure it's entirely is going to solve all of it, but I've been interested because, you know, we need to make sure that people can send money to those to vulnerable populations. And we want to make sure that companies feel confident that they won't be afoul of U.S. or international law. And I just wanted to open it up to, to the three of you if you have any thoughts on on this idea around security of the transactions and making sure that it, it wouldn't get any of these sort of financing of terrorism, money laundering problems. Yeah, I mean, this whole AYC kind of regulations, there are no figures, I mean, not that I know of at least. Actually, we, we do know that it raises the cost of remittance transfers. 
We do know that banks have to implement it. And as you mentioned, for MTOs, they are scared, especially if it was a country like Somalia, you would be concerned. But globally as well, we would need to figure out a way to bring down these costs. Is digital currencies the answer to it? I mean, it depends on what the structure of the digital currency is, but would it make it would it make the sender and user anonymous or how would it work? But it could bring down the costs for sure if you don't have to meet KYC requirements. Yeah, it's this combination, right, of ease, costs, and and safety, security that, that actually are, are mutually reinforcing. If one of them is out of whack, it's it's likely that the others are going to rise uh, or become more more difficult. Alexis, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, I think, I mean, ultimately... I think it always comes down to cost. I mean, obviously, it's a a number of different factors, but people are always, when they're they're not well off at all, they're always going to seek out the cheapest option. And they actually don't necessarily think so much about the risks. The risks are something that falls to policymakers and the the, the regulators in particular to think about and try to work around. But I think we'll be in a kind of whack-a-mole situation whereby there will be new ways in which to send money and there'll be a constant to and fro between innovation and the regulators trying to, you know, really enforce some form of framework, only for there to be a cheaper option where you could be anonymous, but maybe expose yourself to more risks, because that will be the trade-off. So I think that's a challenge that needs to be addressed. In terms of how you address those challenges, I honestly have no idea. Yomi, that's going to make it very hard for you to close up this episode. You have any brilliant ideas? <laughs> well, unfortunately not. But I mean, for me, it, it, I, I see this, you know, through one single lens, right? More bad things are likely to happen if there is no regulation as opposed to if there is regulation. Right now, there's a playing field where bad faith actors can thrive because, you know, lots of governments are undecided about this. So I do think that ultimately having a situation where it's clear to a consumer where they can I, I mean Alexis makes a great point as far as cost is concerned right but if there there are methods through which you know illegitimate players can be identified then the consumer goes into that transaction with both eyes open knowing that they are taking a risk right now there's too much ambiguity in the space and that allows bad faith actors to thrive Well, I I didn't think we were going to solve this problem, but I'm deeply appreciative of the three of you for sharing your insights and expertise. And let me just also note for our listeners, thank you for their patience as we moved our podcast schedule to accommodate for Thanksgiving holiday for American listeners. Um, But we are back on schedule now and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.